What do you think of when you think of classical music? This? Maybe this? Or perhaps this? Well, the truth is, classical music is all of this and so much more. Hi, I'm Alexis French and welcome to Start Here. Over this series, I'm going to go on a journey through genre, from country to classical, from K-pop to hip-hop. Each episode, I'm going to be asking an expert what they love about their genre, getting them to break down what makes it work musically, and finally get a recommendation. Where should the uninitiated start? In this episode, I'm on home turf, because we're going to be digging in to classical music. And as we'll discover, the word classical is very hard to define. I know firsthand that the label of classical music can seem inaccessible, conjuring up off-putting elitist associations. So I wanted to have an honest, reflective conversation with a fellow musician who is working hard to open up the genre to new fans and new musicians. For this episode, I'm going to be joined by organist Anna Lapwood, who you may know from one of her viral moments, from her epic performance of the Interstellar theme, to a surprise collaboration with contemporary act Bonobo, and creative organ mashups that draw from pop, rock, and even electronic music. Anna does all this as a fierce advocate of music and her efforts to bring opportunities to children from all backgrounds. At 21, Anna became the youngest ever director of music at Pembroke College, Cambridge, and before that was the first ever female organ scholar in Magdalen College's 560-year history. So she knows something about breaking down barriers. We're going to get into the complicated job of defining classical music, why classical music stardom differs from pop, rock, or hip hop. And whether the label itself may be holding back the genre, let's get into it. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today, Anna. How are you? I'm really, really well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to see you. Great to see you. And you've been so busy. I've been seeing you on socials, popping up everywhere, doing incredible-looking collaborations with uh, other contemporary artists, huge-scale classical concerts, and all that sort of stuff. Is that what really motivates you? Where are you most at home as a classical artist? Where do you feel? Oh, now I've arrived. Oh, this is the thing I really want to be doing. Oh, it's a really hard question because for me, it really is the variety that motivates me. I think yes, I love doing a show like Ministry of Sound that we did last week. When you have six thousand people who aren't expecting to hear the organ and suddenly scream when you start playing Bach's Toccata in D minor, mm. that is really cool. And yeah. then I'm in the chapel at Pembroke, conducting the girls' choir, singing Evensong, and that feels like home too. I think a lot of us thrive on variety, and mm. you learn to juggle quite a lot of plates. I bet, I bet. So tell me and tell our listeners why should they give classical music a try? What's your brief pithy elevator pitch? I think the thing about classical is that it. Encapsulates so many different sound worlds. So, whatever、mm -hmm. kind of music you love, 
you can find its sibling in classical, whether you're taking the sort of soaring strings from trance music, those heart-shattering drums from dance music, or, I don't know, the lush orchestrations from film. All of those have parallels in the classical world. Nice. I like that. I like that. And I could fit that on a postage stamp as well, which is especially good. So Anna, tell us how you first got into classical music. I think when I was young, it wasn't just classical. It was kind of all music. I started the piano when I was tiny, when I was about four, I think. Uh, But we used to just listen to music in the car the whole time and completely uh, diverse range of music. We had Vanessa May. We had My Dad Loved Libera, uh, quite a lot of worship music. Uh, and I just loved listening. I loved playing. I loved communicating through music. I think one of the things that people find difficult about classical music is all the kind of negative baggage that surrounds it, those kind of perceived barriers to entry. What is it that you think that classical music brings about? What is it that that name conjures up to people? And what is it that you are trying to rail against, as it were, and reframe for your own work? I think it depends a little bit who you ask, right? Mm. Because if you ask a classical musician, what is classical music? They'll probably go, well, how long have you got? I mean, have you got a three-year degree? Because we try and learn how to define it in three years, and even then it's hard. Mm. I think sometimes there can be this misconception that it's something very uptight, and very constricted and quite narrow-minded. And actually, I don't know many classical musicians who are like that at all. And everyone I know is trying to make it this place uh, which exists that is welcoming and outward-looking and trying to be a place that anyone can feel they belong uh, and anyone can find something which appeals to them. Just as I was saying earlier, how like whatever music you think you like, you can find it, it's paralleling classical. Mm. And I think almost everyone I know is trying to help people make those connections. Absolutely. So let's dig back into your own journey, if we could. So you've talked about when you first fell in love with music, not classical music, but just music as a whole. How driven was the young Anna? And what did your path look like? I was... A very, um, <laughs> a very driven girl, I think, as a child. I think I was a goody two-shoes. I never went against what my teachers said, except when it came to music. Because I remember being told as a young child, oh, if you want to be a musician, you need to focus now. You need to choose your instrument, and that's going to be your instrument all the way through. And I remember turning around and saying, but that's not how I see music. I see it as a chance to try all these different things and experiment and find my voice on all those different things Mm. and try out as many instruments as I can at that stage. I used to sort of go to charity shops and find any instrument I could and save up for them. And I think that was my kind of little rebellion as someone who was otherwise doing exactly what I was told the whole time and wouldn't dream of questioning any kind of authority. And that was something that kind of stayed with me all the way through, I knew I loved the breadth of being a musician or how I saw being a musician could be. And I didn't find the organ until my mid-teens. So I'm quite glad that I didn't choose my instrument early on. Otherwise, I don't know if I would be sitting here talking to you. I might be doing something very different indeed. A lot of firsts in your life as well. I mentioned first ever director of music at Pembroke College and so many others as well. Have you found... 
the world's sort of resistance to what you do? Or have these doors been well and truly opened or have you found you've had to bash them down? I think there's certainly been a little bit of bashing down. I think it's more that you have to learn to ignore the noise. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you're trying to make change happen, particularly in this industry, some people are not going to like it. And having grown up as a bit of a goody two-shoes, wanting to please everyone the whole time, that was a really hard thing to come to terms with, the fact that I simply could not please everyone Mm. and that some people were not going to like me. That is difficult, and I think it's something we all struggle with a little bit, learning to ignore the comments and the, the nastiness. But I think you just have to keep saying to yourself, on this path, am I achieving positive change in some way? And is that enough to outweigh the negativity? And I think it's a conversation we have to keep having with ourselves on a sort of monthly basis and keep checking in and keep tweaking accordingly, but learn to ignore it, basically. Absolutely. But I want to talk about classical as a term. And what is classical music to you? You've given the elevator pitch, but what is it? Why is classical music different to, to pop, to jazz, to grime, to hip hop? What makes classical music classical? I was trying to think about this, preparing for this call. And I, every definition I came up with, I then found a, a hundred examples mm. where it disproved the definition. So I started being like, well, okay, let's say acoustic instruments. Yep. But we all know that there is so much classical music which doesn't use acoustic instruments and is entirely electronic or uses a fusion. So then I was like, well, perhaps we could talk about it in terms of long-form ideas. Mm. So stretching out a concept, a musical idea for, what, 90 minutes if you're looking at something like Mahler's Third Symphony or you're looking at a Wagner opera upwards of five hours. But then again, there is so much classical music which is miniature. And these pieces that are under a minute long and still contain so much information. And, and a lot of long-form other music, of course. Thinking of Pink yeah. Floyd, think of Mike Oldfield and, and all those kind of explorations. Yeah. So what did you hit on? Was there one common denominator which you felt, actually, this is true for everything that I know of classical music? Or do you think it's the fact that there isn't any one thing? I think it's almost defined by the fact that it's a little bit undefinable. And I think it also says a lot about the direction classical music has moved in, Mm. that the boundaries seem to have become increasingly blurred between classical and everything else, the Mm. more you look at sort of contemporary music. Mm. That's, for me, the best thing about it. Mm. The fact that you can just slide from classical, you can slide across the border to jazz, or you can slide across the border to film music or whatever it is. That's why I think it's something that everyone should should give a chance. Yeah, no, you're quite right. And, and thinking about, say, the works of Turnage, which, you know, feature sort of jazz improvisation so successfully in Marcellus, so many other composers crossing mm. between genres, cross-fertilisation. Well, there's that def- Turnage as well that quotes Beyonce's single ladies. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Such, we did it's it in MYO. It's a great piece. <laughs> kind of interpolations, yeah. And, I, so, and it's not just notated music because there's a lot of non-notated classical music. Here's, here's a thing. I saw an article a couple of months ago and somebody sent it to me and said, Alexis, do you want to comment on this for press? And I, I took a deep dive into this thing. And it was this article talking somewhat disparagingly about certain artists and composers' inclusion in, I can't remember whatever award it was, I think it was a Grammys thing or something like that, mm. and how they shouldn't be included because they are not classical. 
And so I took a deeper dive and I thought, okay, let's, let's investigate. And so I, I listened to a little bit of the music and then I, I thought, okay, I'm not quite understanding this. What is the resistance here? I, I've heard far more radical works that have been included in, in those kind of lists. And then I sat with it for a moment and I thought, well, let me take a look at the biographies. And then it suddenly hit on me that all of these composers were black. Hmm. All of the people that were being cited as not representative of the, the classical canon, that shouldn't be included in this Grammy list. And it just hit on me for a moment. For some... Is it actually an image? Does classical music need to be played by certain people in order to qualify as classical? Are we fighting that battle? And of course, this is an age-old old battle. And again, I've, I've cited before people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King and just how fond they were of, of the classical vernacular and the classical world and how they were keen to embrace that as part of the black struggle. But is there a narrative here that runs deeper than actually the music, the content, the notation, the motifs? I really hope it's not that. I think everyone is trying very hard, particularly in the last couple of years, I think there's been a particular push to diversify the classical musicians we see on a daily basis. And I think the thing about otherness of any kind, so in some bits of the classical world it's talking about gender in others it's talking about race in others it's talking about class as an artist who is put in the other box for whatever reason I think the thing is not that people think you don't belong there I think it's just that you have to work even harder to prove yourself because people wait for you to slip up <laughs> and expect that and expect that and what do you think are the biggest challenges that classical music faces in reaching new audiences. This perhaps isn't a question for you because you, you do it so successfully. Thinking across the piece and across the classical landscape, what would you do if you had a sort of de facto role as artistic director of every single classical organisation across the land and you could suddenly press this hard reset? Bang, there we go. That will fix it. What would be the first point of order? What would you do first of all? I don't think it's any single thing that's going to do it. But one of the big things I have noticed is in classical, we are much more nervous about the promotion of personalities. So whereas if you look at the pop world, mm. an artist like Taylor Swift, they are marketing themselves as a person and the music along with it. And yeah. it's almost like an equal balance, right? Yes. People love the person, they love the music. Sometimes they hate the person, hate the music, right? But they, the person is attached to it. And I think in classical, we're nervous about that idea because it's almost like we have to push aside the idea of ego or anything like that. And it all has to be in service of the music, which I understand. But actually, if people are used to seeing artists as people, not just the music... Mm. And then suddenly we're presenting them with just the music. They don't necessarily follow and they don't understand mm -hmm. why they should get involved. So I think the big thing I say to young people is you have to be part of it. You have to be willing to share a little bit of yourself. And you can choose how much of yourself, but it can be about the person too. And that doesn't mean that it's shameless self-promotion. It's just how this generation expects to receive music. It's interesting that you mentioned Taylor Swift, obviously a hugely prolific songwriter, performer, 
and obviously her impact and contribution to the economy, the American economy, shouldn't be <laughs> underestimated either. And there's an artist who's so successfully combined this idea of brand identity and people buy into the idea of Taylor Swift as even before the music itself, right? And you're saying this is something that classical music can can learn from. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Just looking at, at classical music now and the way people perceive it, going back, you know, hundreds of years, the, the Mozarts, for instance, of, of their day, they were the popular musicians of their day. That was it, right? This is mm. before the term classical music started to appear in, in, in English, as it were, in 1829. So this is when the music of its day in Mozart, that was the pop. When was that lost? When was that fabric and the link between society and that classical music, when was that umbilical cord cut? And when did things start to splinter? It's funny. I don't necessarily think of it in terms of it like being lost. I think it's just been on a, on a journey, a sort of parallel journey all the way through. And so I find it so cool in a way that if you took a different person every year and said, this is classical music, and then said, this is classical music in 100 years' time, they'd be like, what? And they wouldn't recognise necessarily the classical music of 100 years' time. I mean, if we were shown the classical music of 100 years now... Would we recognise it as classical? It, it, it's a constantly changing, constantly evolving thing uh, that is, I think, always linked to what else is going on in the world, what else is going on musically, what's going on socially. Indeed. So that leads me to another question then. Given the fact it's constantly changing, given the fact this term was, was coined way back when, and I think we've established that it isn't particularly helpful, is it time to ditch the term once and for all. Oh, that's a good there question. I, yeah. There I just, I'm just going to lay that at your feet, if I may, Anna. Allow you to cogitate on that for a moment. I think it's helpful as a label in a CD shop. Yes, but, <laughs> yes, but how, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for this. How many CD shops are there out there these days? Listen, I have spent so many wonderful hours in CD shop, but do you think that's its only purpose it's only a service so of course people consume music in different ways these days on the, you know dsp platforms what good does the term do it's a really good question and it's not one i've really thought about i think as long as we're not seeing it as like a classical sits behind a door that is closed and you have to know the password and have a million different keys to open it i think mm. as long as we're seeing it as something that exists open and putting out feelers through that door the mm. whole time and bringing mm. people in. I think as long as we're all doing that, I think it, it, it can be a helpful thing. But the moment we start to close it down and think mm. of it existing in an almost impenetrable box, that's mm. when I think things start to get difficult. What do you think? Yeah. I, I'm not sure how helpful it is these days. I think... Where we do see differences are in the way it's treated. And, uh, you know, for instance, back in the day, this certainly used to be the case. Performers used to do jazz gigs. People used to do classical gigs. You'd always get paid more for doing the classical gigs, mm. right? Funding, this, this kind of stuff. And there, there is this kind of delineation, differentiation between the genres in that sense because of how it's perceived. But 
I'm not sure how helpful it is in the, in, in the broader sense, but I think as long as it's tethered to this idea of coming from a certain tradition, being part of a never-ending, always-evolving story, I can live with that. Yeah. And from a marketing point of view, in terms of record companies and selling records, selling brands, creating stories, it's perhaps helpful in that sense, which goes back to the record shop yeah. kind of idea. But I think... I'm going to lay it on the ground. It probably does more damage than good, I would say. Oh, in I terms don't know. The, no, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to sit on the fence with this one. I do. I think in terms of the people that it turns off, the, the work that has to be done to get people through the door, even before you've played the music, simply because of the connotations of the word. I it's feel like that's changing, though. Well, you're one of the people who's changing it, Anna, but it's no different to the term grime. Mm. And, you know, present that, that word in terms of people, you, you, you'd struggle to get um, people to listen to, to grime music because of what they feel it represents and who they feel it's for. But I think, um, I really do think that social media has changed the game there. Because if you look at the interest in classical music on TikTok, mm. and the, I, I don't know how many million, billions probably, have followed the classical music TikTok handle, like, yeah, it's, mass, it's massive. It's yeah. huge. And I think what, yeah. what that's done is to show people that any misconceptions they had about that term mm. are just uh, are not really true. And that there are a whole host of us. I mean, I know you're on there as well. There's a whole host of us working to try and show people, no, no, this is something where anyone belongs. Uh, you're welcome to come on in, come and have a little look. Here's the, there's no code, just come on. You're absolutely, I mean, that's the work that's being done. But it's work that perhaps doesn't need to be done with, say, something like hip hop or, or jazz. Mm. That You know, those people think, okay, if I like it, I'll buy in. It's not, I'm going to have to buy into the idea of it first, then I might give it a listen. Mm. There, is that, 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 there is that sort of preamble, there's that preparation work to lay the ground, to have a dialogue um, about this amazing music. Um and that's where I think it perhaps isn't isn't helpful. I realise we're getting into like essay territory here, <laughs> but I think I think if we're saying that the classical label isn't helpful, I think then mm-hmm. no labels. I, I'm, and I'm not saying I could definitely disagree, but I think if we're saying classical isn't helpful, I think then the other labels are also quite unhelpful because actually, as we've sort of already established, the boundaries between different genres are so blurred. How do you sort out? the things that are on the fringes of each of these genres, which are yeah. constructs. I, I, I think I might regret this last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the backlash. Did he really say that? Oh, my goodness me. So, um, Anna, how about this? If you're game, I'm game. An alternative word for classical. If you're game, I'll come I in with mine. I don't think I would do an alternative word. I you think I would one. just scrap the labels. Oh, you scrap the labels altogether. Not the record labels, to clarify, the yes. <laughs> musical labels. I think I would just, uh, it would be lovely to talk about music as a whole. It's different for everyone. It is. What classical music is, or what music is, is different mm. to everyone. And I guess it's another reason why I think perhaps these labels, I mean, I know they can help at a kind of a, a very, very superficial level, but when it goes deeper, and that's what it's all about, it's the deep stuff that matters. Yeah. I just think what music is and what it means to us is totally personal. 100%. I can agree with that. So I think we're down to definitions. I think we've we've sort of skirted around the subject of classical music. We I think we just agree between us that we're probably not going to get there during this pod. (laughs) Out of interest, how would you define it? 
Classical. I think classical is a beautiful, never-ending idea. It's ever-evolving and it emanates from a tradition. And so I think it, in that sense, it is, it's everything and it's in anything. But I think it's, it's that, the fact that it has derived from a mm. particular tradition, but that does not mean that it cannot be something entirely different today. Yeah. But it's the idea of it being an idea, I think, which is really beautiful. And, and there are so many artists now today reframing that for, for, for modern audiences. And, and I think audiences are just, um, they're coming to this music and embracing this new universe, certainly due to, in part, the proliferation of DSPs and, mm. and platforms and the fact that you can hop from Taylor Swift one minute to an Anna Lapwood organ piece the next minute and not yeah. think anything of it. And that's opened up um, huge array of opportunities, I think, which is really, really exciting, not only for the listener, but also for the artists. Yeah. Because I think there, are, there are a number of, of young artists right now in record companies that probably may have been dropped two or three records ago, but have not been because of the revenue that, you know, streaming is bringing in. So I think it's, it's been a really important innovation for artists. And of course, one gets back to the fact, I think classical as a term is this artificial construct that only came into being, I think, 1829, mm. I'm sure. So, you know, before that, there was no such thing. So I think we can spell it with a very, very small C <laughs> and, be, and be very comfortable about doing that. Did you see there was a thing this week? Sorry, I don't mean to derail. There was a thing this week where someone on Desert Island Discs said they hated classical music in the context of a certain quote and it got taken out of context, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And someone else said on Twitter, so refreshing to see this guy say he hates classical music. And uh, there was this pylon from everyone in the classical world saying, what do you yeah. mean you hate classical music? And I can, I totally understand where that came from because obviously we know that, we all know that classical encompasses such a huge thing. And saying you hate all classical music, that's a quite a big statement. But at the same time, I think we have to be so careful that we're not jumping on people like that. And we're not saying, oh, you don't know, you don't know. And instead we're saying, huh, what about this? Have you tried that? Because this is actually really similar to this music that you've said you like. Mm. And we just have to be trying to be ambassadors for our art the whole time. I absolutely agree with that. I think there's also something to be said um, about standing in your own truth. I think there are people who, who may not explicitly hate classical music, they probably may not know enough classical music to hate yeah. it, but they can certainly hate the idea of it. Yeah. And, and perhaps even hate what it stands for. I've been in concert halls, I won't say where, or, or when, but I've been in concert halls where people have been talking about, isn't this concert amazing? We're diversifying reach. Mm. And I've just sort of looked around and I've just thought to myself, where is the diversification of reach in this concert hall? And it's almost, I just literally just stand there incredulous about what's being said and then the contradiction and the dissonance of what I'm seeing. Mm. And I think as classical musicians, we need to look at ourselves uh, with all humility and just consider, are we doing everything that we possibly can be doing at this time? But yeah. equally, you know, I've seen on social media, there was a furore a while back about somebody saying something about, you mustn't look down on, on people who don't read music. I don't know whether you saw this. Oh. Uh, uh, and, and then all those of classical music come back and say, I, you know, I've never ever... And, and, and for me, I've never ever met a classical music, musician who looks down on somebody for not reading music. But that's not to say they don't exist. I just mm. I haven't personally. But we do get ourselves in, in a tizzy. 
But one thing that can always win over is the music itself. There's nothing more powerful than young musicians making music. And that must have been for you as a, as a young musician, harpist, principal, principal harpist. When, what was that like as an experience for you? It was incredible. I mean, that orchestra is huge. It's 165 players, I think. Yeah. And when I first started playing with it, it was the best music making I'd ever done. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Like the floor started shaking. We're doing Mars from the planets. I think it was our first thing I did with them. And the floor mm. was shaking and I was just sitting there like, wow, this is so cool. And awesome. I thought, how amazing that this could be something I could do for my career. I could sit in an orchestra and play. It just the feeling of collective music making is like nothing else. Mm. And I, I mean, I love playing as a soloist, but I do really miss those days of knowing you and the, everyone else in the room have sat there for the hours in the rehearsal room together and mm. got it 90% and then really worked to get at that last 10%. That, that's incredible. You're a director of music now. Goodness knows how you fit that in. I think I mentioned this to you uh, when, when we last met, but do you see, I mean, obviously one can never say, but for the foreseeable, do you see education as being an integral part of what you do professionally? It's just such an incredible feeling. And I think it goes back to this idea of variety, right? I've never been a person who likes just doing one thing and mm. sticking with that one thing. So whenever I'm here working, it feels like a break from playing. And whenever I'm playing, it feels like a break from working here. But there's something about going into a choir practice and you can be in a foul mood sometimes because of whatever, maybe someone's having an argument on social media, who knows? You can mm. be in a foul mood and then you go into a choir practice and it's all about making sure that they have a positive musical experience and you come out on cloud nine with mm. almost without fail every time. It just resets everything. And knowing that you've been a part of, I don't know, since I started the girls' choir, I don't, let's say 40 girls' musical journeys. Mm. Yeah, fine. In comparison to social media numbers, that's nothing. But that's huge to be a proper part of their musical journey and perhaps be part of the reason they might decide to keep singing later in life. Mm. <laughs> you don't get that from anything else. And it's something that I could never let go of. I would be a, mm. an emotional wreck if I did, I think. Mm. So in terms of pieces of music, musical experiences on record, CDs, wherever people access their music, if you were to say, start here, for somebody who's unfamiliar with what we're calling classical with a very small C, what would you say are those works to start with? I think the, the one that I always suggest to people is The Planets. funny that I was just saying that that was the first piece I did with NYO and it was one of the first big orchestral pieces I played. I think I love the fact that it's almost like each planet takes on its own character and you delve into the musical journey of that character. Mm. I think that the orchestral colours are just phenomenal. It pushes the orchestra bit in such an exciting way and I think anyone who loves film music, it's a great place to start. I mean, Gladiator uses a little bit of the planets. It, it, you can hear those parallels all the way through. So that's that's definitely a starting point for me. So the, another one, and actually this is one that I have used on quite a few taxi journeys of all things, oh. when taxi drivers have said to me, 
What mm. can I listen to for classical? I often say Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet, Overture. Again, it has a story, and I think it's so fun putting it on in a taxi and trying to explain the story on top of what's going on. Oh, you put on. it on in the taxi? You don't just leave them with it. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. You, you actually... Okay. It's great. And then and we we sort of talk through it, and I say, and this is when this is happening, and yeah. I get a bit overexcited. Yeah. And then I guess lastly... I am a massive fan of the choral music of Eric Whittaker, not only because yeah. I think he's an excellent human being, mm -hmm. but because I think his music speaks to so many people. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. Across such a huge range of backgrounds and ages. So I would say something like Lux Arumque. which is totally different from The Planets. It's totally different from Tchaikovsky, Romeo and Juliet. But yeah. it immerses you in a, a very different sound world to what you might hear if you're not already listening to classical music. And it's a good yeah. gateway drug, I think. Well, that, there's three fantastic things. So we've got the Hulse, we've got the Tchaikovsky, we've got the Eric Witter. Wonderful stuff. So um, last question I have for you, and, and we, we started here, I think, with talking about your amazing collabs with this growing list of, of contemporary artists. How do you feel when you're seated at the organ, surrounded by thousands of people, in, in, in some cases, playing these sort of magical musical experiences? How does that make you feel? in that moment? It's almost impossible to put into words. It is just total euphoria. And I think it comes in sort of waves. So you have the excitement of sitting down and knowing that no one really knows you're there or what you're doing, or going, why on earth is there someone sitting at the organ? It's not an organ concert. Mm. And then you have the rush when you first play and the audience response. Then you get the rush at the all the way through and the joy and the, whoa, this is so much fun. The rush at the end when there's the applause. But what I love now is then everything that happens after that because the real joy is when you can amplify that on social media, put the video from Ministry of Sound up. And I mean, that one which went up last week has already had, I think, six million views. Oh, um, That's crazy. Which is nuts. And then yeah. it takes on a life of its own. And mm. suddenly you start seeing all the videos from the audience's perspective, which start coming up as well. Mm. And it forms a community all centred around that one musical moment. And that is a community that then stretches into the future. The last time I did a collaboration like that and it went a bit nuts with Bonobo, mm. I still, two years later or a year and a half later, I'm getting people coming to my concerts who say they've never been to a classical concert, they've never been to an organ concert, but they're there because of that one video a year and a half ago. Awesome. 
So for you, how important is collaboration in extending the reach of classical music as as we know it? How important is that and how far can it go? I think it's really important. And I think it's important that we don't think of it as diluting (laughs) at all. Mm. If I've learned anything from the collaborations I've done, it's that it's totally blown my preconceptions about music and its boundaries out the water. And it's reminded me that good music transcends genre, right? And so I think there can be this danger that we think, oh, so-and-so is doing that collaboration. They're cheapening themselves to expand their reach or whatever it is. (laughs) When actually it's about broadening your sense of what music is and seeing what you can learn from a slightly different way of doing things. Love that. Well, this is what you do so magnificently. Anna Lapwood, thank you so, so much for joining me today on Start Here. Lovely to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Start Here, which is brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. If you enjoyed our interview, subscribe now to get more episodes direct to your feed. Got a genre you want us to unpack? Why not follow ABRSM on Twitter, TikTok or Instagram and tell us what we should get into next. See you next time. The team at ABRSM is Eleanor Hampton, Gemma Ralston, Rowena Taylor and me, Alexis French, ABRSM's Artistic Director. The Creative Director at Chalk and Blade is Ruth Barnes. The producer was Emily Wally and the series was mixed by Nathan De Silva. The theme music is Vida Viva Amor by Alexis French courtesy of Universal Music Publishing Group and Sony Music Entertainment. The intro track was Dance of the Cosmos by Benjamin Paul Eschmade, courtesy of Universal Production Music. Other music is from Musopen, Lud and Schlatz Musical Emporium and Eric Whitaker Virtual Choir published via Walton Music. <laughs>